trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Man, I don't know what it is. Uh, It might just be cold and flu season, but I swear about every other week, I feel like I'm fighting this existential crisis. Will he keep his voice this week or not? Yeah, today's one of those days, but, uh, ah, what the heck? I got a lot to say, and you folks are going to hear it all, to quote uh, Frank Costanza. Nonetheless, welcome to the show, and thank you to the sponsors who make this program possible, including lifesavingfood.com, quiltandsew.com, Ironsight Brewing Company, that's ironsightbc.com, as well as tmcpnation.com. You can check them out at my my personal website, which is The Brian Hyde Show. I'm going to throw another little plug out there. And this is, uh, in fact, okay, pull up a chair. Make yourself comfortable here. I want to share something with you that uh, it, it may be biting the hand that feeds me, but I feel like I need to put this on the table. I'm actually looking forward to a day when I am not doing a podcast or a a radio show and focusing almost exclusively on a short form feature that I have been producing for a little over a year now. It's called Hide in Plain Sight. Some of you are aware of it. I think I'm I'm sitting at about 500 subscribers at this point. Um, I don't charge anything for, for that. It's not a subscription. I mean, let me walk that back. Some people subscribe. I do have some paid subscribers, but I distribute that content for free because I believe it's it's a worthwhile message. And and I don't want to make it sound like so. Uh, here's, here's the differentiation between what I'm doing right now and what I do with Hide in Plain Sight. But there is a pretty big difference. Number one, Hide in Plain Sight is 100% not political. I don't I don't go into political territory and tell you about this personality or this particular policy. What I do spend a lot of time though talking about is personal character and and more importantly how you and I can claim our personal character and why we should consider doing it in the quest to essentially undertake our own hero's journey and become whoever it is that we're trying to become. Now, not everybody has that sense that uh, I should be something more than I am today. But for those who have felt that, uh, that urge or have had that little spark of interest that makes them think, you know, I feel like I'm being called to do more with my life, my influence, my voice, whatever it is, that's who I'm speaking to. And I'm offering encouragement and hopefully some insights. And it's not that I'm the fount of all knowledge. I have a lot of wonderful resources and great thinkers that I can draw from. But I pack it down into about a 90-second message. So I do a a recorded audio part of it, which is, again, just down and dirty, little two-minute truth bomb, boom, and and you're on your way. I also publish these in the form of, you know, again, short-form, roughly 250-word essays that really don't take a whole lot of time to read, but I'm addressing the purposes and principles and, and practices that make life more meaningful. Not because I say so, but just simply 
These, these are things that, uh, when you look at them, are, are common sense. Well, why don't more people acknowledge them? Well, that's a good question, because more often than not, we're distracted. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody. We've got screens in front of us 24-7. By the way, I have reached out to uh, Jeff Einstein, and, and I hope to have him back on the program here soon. Um, he is... Uh, this, this guy has been warning about digital addiction for a lot of years, and I think his message has never been more relevant. But I'm just I'm going to ask you to consider. I didn't I didn't even include this in today's show notes as far as a link to hideinplainsight.substack.com. Now, if you go to the show.com you'll find a link there that will take you there. But I, I haven't put this into the show notes. But if you haven't checked it out for yourself. Can I just appeal to your curiosity? Go see for yourself. Is is it really all that? I'll tell you why I'm I'm taking a moment here to toot my horn and ask you to to consider this. It's because along the way I have uh, I have found myself really wanting to use the tools and the talents and the passions that I believe God has given me and helped me and allowed me to develop over the course of my life, I feel like this is a higher and better use with what I'm doing with hide in plain sight than what I do each day on the Brian Hyde Show. Now, you know, I'm not trying to be self-deprecating here. I love talking about current events, so I've always got to take, you know, you think, do you have an opinion on this, Brian? Oh, do I ever? <laughs> you know, but right now I have this perception that there are an awful lot of people who recognize very clearly. I mean, come on, how blind would you have to be not to at least have a sense that, hey, something here doesn't feel right. <laughs> Something's not, something is not going according to plan. But you don't need more fear. You don't need more anger or anxiety added to an already volatile situation. And so I try to bring more light than heat. And my goal is I want to transition away from doing a regular podcast and show into doing hide in plain sight almost exclusively. Now, that doesn't mean I would turn down an opportunity to interview interesting people and thoughtful people who I think are really adding substance to the discussion and to the great conversation going on around us. I'm just uh, kind of putting it out there. This is, this is where my heart has actually been, been leading me for the better part of the last year. And I've made some pretty significant gains with the help of a lot of great people. And I'm inviting you to check it out. And if, it's, if you want to be a part of that journey, hey, feel free. You know, it's a free subscription comes right to your email inbox. I've got a limited number of radio stations that have picked up the feature and and air it daily. But it's this is my attempt to use what I have to work with for what I hope is a higher and better purpose. Not that this is something lesser, it's just I feel like I can do more good through through that short form programming. All right. Thank you for letting me bear my soul. <sighs> I felt like I needed to get that off my chest because it's it's a really interesting turn for me. I'm seeing, you know, the, the radio is is changing. It's kind of going the same way as newspaper. Even the digital frontier is evolving. 
And everybody who's trying to, to work within that and to communicate, you know, ideas of importance or ideas of interest, you know, we're all trying to find our way. I feel like I've kind of found mine or I'm, I'm in the process of it. And the way I know that I'm on a good path is it's, it's hard to describe. Some people will get this. Most people probably won't. But there comes a, a sense of peace and, and purpose when you find yourself synchronized or lined up with, uh, with what God, the universe, however you want to put it, intends for you to do or would, would want you to do. I'll probably just go ahead and drop it from there and, and uh, we'll, we'll move on with the show. But again, thanks for hearing me out. So on today's show, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about, uh, first of all, I think the one thing I'll start with, and I'll do this uh, after the break, I want to talk about uh, the near universal screen addiction that we face. And until somebody points it out, and I, I got to tip my hat to, uh, again, Jeff, Jeffrey Einstein, he has been writing about this for a long time, and just he's the guy who coined the phrase uh, Huxwell. You know how we're living in a cross between what Aldous Huxley in Brave New World forecasted as well as what George Orwell in 1984 predicted. But we're so immersed in this online world, we're like fish. And when someone says, hey, what do you think about the water? Fish are like, what? What? What water? In other words, it's so ubiquitous, it's so a part of our lives, we don't even consciously recognize it. And so if you occasionally have that little ping of, you know, I'm spending an awful lot of time looking at my phone or looking at my computer or watching television or whatever it is, sometimes people feel like, I need a break. Now, if, if it's been an especially eventful news cycle, I, I talk to people who, who often will say, I just had to take a break. I had to, you know, step away from social media, step away from news or whatever. I'm thinking that's actually a good idea. And I recommend taking a media fast on a fairly regular basis, if nothing else, just to step back, let your head clear, recalibrate your antenna, and then, you know, you can charge back into the fray. Well, when we come back from the break, I want to share with you Three excellent suggestions for how you can do what is called a digital detox. This is from a writer by the name of Alethea Hitz, writing for intellectualtakeout.org. And yes, I do include a link to her article in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. These are the show notes for January 10th, 2024. So stay close. We'll talk about how to do a digital detox. Three easy steps to get you started right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's take a little time here to talk about how to have a digital detox. Alethea hits writing for intellectualtakeout.org, uh, wrote this uh, wonderful column. And these are three tips to get started. Now, tell me if, if what she says here rings a bell with you. She says, a couple of weeks ago, when my fall semester ended, I broke my informal YouTube fast. And after only a few days, I was reminded of why I enjoy leaving it alone. She says, sites like YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter catch the viewer by stimulating a seemingly never-ending desire for more. 
It's like the childhood hiding under the covers with a flashlight urge. One more chapter, one more chapter. Except the stimulation of watching videos or scrolling is probably less helpful than reading a book. Sites like YouTube tend to pull the viewer in, snatching up an hour where 15 minutes was intended. Oh, is that ever the truth? Right? Oh, look, a related video. Hey, that's interesting. The algorithms read, you know, what we prefer, what we want to see, and they feed it to us. Hey, what do you think of this? Huh? You like that? You like that? Hey, check this one out. We're like a fish on a hook. Now, Alethea Hits says, I can't say, though, that YouTube has been uniformly unhelpful. In fact, the discovery of several recent resources on that platform have helped me increase my productivity and be more aware of why and how certain distractions affect productivity. Now, she links to a video that, for example, shows you, uh, it's tantalizingly titled, How I Trained My Brain to Like Doing Hard Things. She asks, how could a philosophy student not click on that? And the video explores the effects of dopamine on the human brain. The video explains that contrary to popular opinion, dopamine is not primarily a pleasure molecule. It's a chemical that makes us desire certain tasks or activities. The greater the activity's perceived reward, the higher amount of dopamine is released. Thus, it's generally not hard to scroll through comedy sketches for a focused hour because the brain anticipates an immediate reward, and it releases dopamine accordingly. But she says, here's the thing that I hadn't thought about. People can train themselves to run on lower amounts of dopamine. In this way, it's kind of like alcohol, drugs, or other addictions. The less someone has of it, the less they're wired to want or need it. So for dopamine, then, people who are used to lower amounts don't require as much mental novelty. Conversely, people whose minds are trained to run on high levels of dopamine find it harder to complete low-dopamine tasks. Hmm, That makes sense. She says, even in my own experience, I find this to be disturbingly true. Sitting down to write this article even has felt extremely difficult. Each time I try to focus... I feel myself craving the quick dopamine shock that bite-sized videos or social media posts have trained me to desire. I want novelty, and focusing on an extended argument isn't novel. So, she says, understanding my own persistent desire for distraction, I've learned a variety of ways that I can help stop myself from investing too much time in productivity-lowering activities. And here she offers three suggestions to start your digital detox. The first one is to block certain sites, or to block sites, rather, for certain hours. She says, I've occasionally used LeechBlock. That's an online browser extension that allows me to target specific sites and limit when I can access them. Though, through, though other apps or extensions could work well, too. She says, with these extensions, I can open entertainment sites for specific lengths of time on specific days. This preserves the essential parts of my week for work, while also allowing me to explore my favorite sites when I have downtime. Not a bad idea. Number two, keep sites bookmarked and stick to those bookmarks. Now, occasionally, she says, there's something on YouTube that I think would be a genuine benefit to me. An explanation of church architecture, for example, or productivity suggestions that are tailored to the way I naturally think. I'll pin these videos to my Watch Later playlist. Later, I can click directly to the videos I know will benefit me, thus lighting the danger of binge-watching more frivolous channels. Number three, she suggests 
abandons sites entirely. Now, this might feel extreme, but she says, in my experience, it's oh so worth it. Most notably, I try to abandon YouTube during the academic year, but on a smaller scale, she says, I'll set aside certain weeks in which I won't go on social media or listen to certain types of music or go online aside from what's necessary for school and work. The abandonment doesn't have to go on indefinitely, but it weans my mind off the dopamine hits I so easily learn to crave. Sometimes even I'll find that my life works a whole lot better without the distractions I once found inevitable, and I'll try to extend my avoidance for longer. That's an interesting approach. She says, whatever your strategy, it's always helpful to ask the question, what genuine problem is X trying to solve? Or to put it another way, is such and such a media outlet, news source, or video service filling a genuine void in your life? Now she says, for me and for YouTube, the answer is generally no, and I'm happy to leave it be. That shows some pretty good self-discipline. Again, this is from Alethea Hits, writing for intellectualtakeout.org. So I'll include a link to her article. Um, I consider Intellectual Takeout one of those uh, resources for wrong thinkers. I like to visit it on a daily basis because there's always thought-provoking commentary and, and insights, and they really have some excellent writers. And so I recommend it to you. By the way, I've also compiled other resources for wrong thinkers on my own website, and, and I just provide some handy links that can you know help you find some of these sites that likewise can better inform your world. I, I consider these to be more trusted, more credible, less partisan-driven commentary, and more principle-based thinking. So, moving on, uh, I have to touch on this just because I, I'm resisting the urge to say, told you so, but... Uh, so, did, did you see there were Ray Epps? This is the guy who was... Seen the night before January 6th, 2021, and on January 6th, was urging people to go into the U.S. Capitol. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's right there on video. Anybody with even an ounce of intellectual honesty has, has seen these videos. And for Ray was initially, he was placed on the FBI's wanted list, you know, for people who were involved in January 6th. Uh, this is as the insurrection narrative was building. But then he mysteriously was taken off that list. And then he became kind of a media darling. Well, you know, this poor man, he's, he's a, a victim of, you know, some kind of conspiracy theory. Look at all these conservatives wrongly suggesting that he's a fed or he's a plant or something like that. And, and sure enough, just a few months ago, it was announced that, yes, Ray Epps will be charged with being, you know, unlawfully in a place where he wasn't supposed to be. Some minor, I think it was a very minor trespassing charge for which... He was sentenced yesterday to a year probation. And I think it was a $500 fine or something like that. And, and a few hours of community service. Okay, grandmas who walked into the Capitol with an American flag didn't break anything. They were let in the doors by Capitol Police. They stayed within the velvet ropes. They walked through and maybe took pictures or had their picture taken. Sit in prison while Ray Epps gets probation, a tiny fine, and some community service. Okay. Is he, is he a plant? Was he a plant? Was he working for the feds? <sighs> sure looks like it. 
And now you've got uh, you've got an attorney for the uh, Department of Justice talking about how essentially they're now looking at uh, basically arresting anybody within the zip code that day, whether they went into the Capitol or not. This attorney's last name is Graves is talking about, well, you know, we uh, we're taking a look at anybody who was on the Capitol grounds. If you were in an area where you did not have permission to be, you could face prosecution. Do you see the problem here? People who were genuinely bad actors, and there were some bad actors on January 6th. But again, the question remains, were they legitimately organic, you know, Trump supporters, or were they people who were dressed up as Trump supporters and actually working as informants or provocateurs? Doesn't matter. If you were there, if you were at the Capitol, there's a target on your back. What kind of message is that sending? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I started today's show with a, an invitation to check out my Substack. And I have to admit, when Substack came along, at first I was kind of like, I don't know about this. But uh, there were some very trusted sources of information that I saw who uh, basically removed themselves from some of the more um, restrictive and censorious platforms and went to Substack, one of them being Glenn Greenwald. This is the guy who helped break the whole Edward Snowden story about uh, the NSA spying on American citizens. I know, but still we're supposed to think, well, yeah, but uh, uh, didn't Snowden pull his pants down at a party once when he was 18? (laughs) Therefore, everything he says is wrong. Anyway, the thing I have loved about Substack, and and at least the the information resources that I have been able to uh, connect with, on Substack is it's not a highly regulated program or a platform rather. You can publish whatever you want and you can monetize it. And it's actually, it's a pretty cool little system. Some people I think are making a very decent living, but the point is because you don't have someone throttling you by virtue of either an algorithm or with outright censors like YouTube has, like Facebook has and Instagram and others you can get some pretty solid information. But of course, uh, free speech is very threatening to people with totalitarian mentalities. I want to share with you, this is a, an, a Substack essay from Brian Kaplan. Substack versus the slippery slope. And, and Substack is once again under fire, he says, for taking free speech too far with the Atlantic. Again, consider the source declaring Substack has a Nazi problem. So they say, uh, this, is, this is a quote from the Atlantic's article. Substack's leaders also proudly disdain the content moderation methods that other platforms employ, albeit with spotty results, to limit the spread of racist or bigoted speech. An informal search of the Substack website and of extremist telegram channels that circulate Substack posts turns up scores of white supremacist, neo-Confederate, and explicitly Nazi newsletters on Substack. Many of them apparently started in the past year. These are, to be sure, a tiny fraction of the newsletters on a site that had more than 17,000 paid writers as of March, according to Axios, and many other writers who do not charge for their work. But to overlook the white nationalist newsletters on Substack as marginal or harmless would be a mistake. Oh boy, somebody wants to control someone else's speech. And here comes the New York Times. 
at the continuing inaction, quote, under pressure from critics who say Substack is profiting from newsletters that promote hate speech and racism. The company's founders said Thursday they would not ban Nazi symbols and extremist rhetoric from the platform. The response came weeks after The Atlantic found that at least 16 Substack's news, Substack newsletters had overt Nazi symbols in their logos, logos or graphics and that white supremacists had been allowed to publish on and profit from the platform. Hundreds of newsletters signed a letter opposing Substack's position and threatening to leave. Another 100 signed a letter supporting the company's stance. So in response to all this, Substack's Hamish McKenzie published a J.S. Mill-flavored note defending Substack's approach. This is what Hamish said. I just want to make it clear that we don't like Nazis either. We wish no one held those views, but some people do hold those and other extreme views. Given that, we don't think that censorship, including through demonetizing publications, makes the problem go away. In fact, it makes it worse. We believe that supporting individual rights and civil liberties while subjecting ideas to open discourse is the best way to strip bad ideas of their power. We are committed to upholding and protecting freedom of expression even when it hurts. To me, that's a very reasonable approach. The antidote for bad ideas is more good ideas, but you can't have that when you start censoring because somebody is going to find, well, this is offensive, or I think this is not inclusive enough, and, and Lord knows there are enough people out there on hair-trigger you know, offense waiting to take offense at anything that anybody says. Now, Brian Kaplan says, the New York Times reports that the science of misinformation has discredited uh, the uh, John Stuart Mill's tradition. They say, Mr. McKenzie also argued in his statement that censorship of ideas that are considered to be hateful only makes them spread. But research in recent years, oh, there's that uh, research shows, suggests the opposite is true. Deplatforming does seem to have a positive effect on diminishing the spread of far-right propaganda and Nazi content. That's Kurt Braddock, a professor of communication at American University who has researched violent extremist groups. When extremists are removed from a platform, they often go to another platform, but much of their audience does not follow them and their incomes are eventually diminished, Professor Braddock said. I can appreciate someone's dedication to freedom of speech rights, but freedom of speech rights are dictated by the government, he said, noting that businesses can choose the types of content they host or prohibit. Yeah, but when you have government and businesses like you know, Facebook, among others, you know, in bed together, government saying, hey, 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 make sure you censor this person or censor that person. Is it really a private business at that point? Seems like there's kind of a partnership. Now, Brian uh, Kaplan says the leftist bias of misinformation studies is so overwhelming that he says, I put little stock in any of this research. But the conclusion that harsh, harsh censorship crushes dissent is intrinsically plausible. Despite his famous support for the long-run fruits of free speech, John Stuart Mill himself acknowledged this much in On Liberty, saying, The dictum that truth always triumphs over persecution is one of those pleasant falsehoods which men repeat after one another until they pass into commonplaces, which, but which all experience refutes. To speak only of religious opinions. He says the Reformation broke out at least 20 times before Luther and was put down. Arnold of Brescia was put down. Fra Dolcino was put down, Savonarola was put down, the Abajois were put down, the Vaudois were put down, the Lollards were put down, the Hussites were put down, even after the era of Luther, 
Wherever persecution was persisted in, it was successful. In Spain, Italy, Flanders, the Austrian Empire, Protestantism was rooted out and most likely would have been so in England had Queen Mary lived or Queen Elizabeth died. Persecution has always succeeded, save where the heretics were too strong a party to be effectually persecuted. End quote. So, Brian Kaplan says, On reflection, however, Substack could make a far stronger argument for platforming and monetizing everyone. The woke slippery slope. Once you censor the blatantly heinous, you'll start censoring the arguably heinous. That has a long history in arguments about toleration and free speech. And what we've learned since 2010 is that if the slippery slope argument had never existed, wokeness would have inspired us to discover it. He says this Orwellian movement habitually decries even the mildest criticisms of its dogmas as the vilest forms of oppression. See the absurd yet successful efforts to smear J.K. Rowling as a transphobe, Roland Fryer as a sexual harasser, and Harold Ulig as a racist. Indeed, the woke habitually damn even fellow leftists for bizarre neo-offenses like misgendering and brown voice. The woke mandates uh, new words for every occasion, yet like Yahweh in the Old Testament, they forbid us to even pronounce their name. Now he says, my point? When faced with a movement this madly censorious, the best response is to say no to everything they ask for. Everything. Why? Because once you censor Nazis for them, they'll just keep ratcheting up their demands until you, yes, you, live in fear of censorship too. He says, this isn't just morbid thinking. I've long acknowledged that appeasement often works, just not with the woke. New York Times article casually lumps Richard Hanania, possibly the world's greatest living essayist, in with the Nazis. Why? Because he anonymously wrote some bad stuff in his early 20s. Months prior to his cancellation, Hanania was already defending near-open borders, but that didn't matter to his would-be career destroyers. The woke replace, if you're not with us, you're against us with, if you were ever against us on anything, we're against you forever. And he says, that's why I enthusiastically support Substack's hard line on free speech. Indeed, I favor an even harder line. Not because free speech will ultimately wipe Nazism off the planet, but because the strict principle of free speech prevents the woke from treating the rest of us like Nazis. Thanks to their current policy, all of Substack's writers can tell themselves, I have nothing to worry about because Substack doesn't even censor freaking Nazis. So please, Substack, please, he says, continue to stand your ground without apology. It is no hyperbole to say that the slippery slope of censorship has never been more real. What an amazing and timely commentary. And can I just throw this out there, too? I know that there, there are many within the sound of my voice who likewise feel like, you know what, I, I feel like I need to be speaking up and I'm not sure how to do it or I'm not sure, you know, do I start a podcast? Do I start my own blog? Can I just encourage you, take a look at Substack and just see if it's a, the kind of platform that offers you uh, a place to express your thoughts. See, I have this uh, I have this really strange belief that those people who feel like they need to speak up, if they will actually take the action and do it, I think they would be surprised to find how much uh, divine providence would move to help them in their effort. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Fourth and final segment for today's show. Again, uh, I sure appreciate my sponsors and I want to give a special recognition to uh, to our friends at Iron Sight Brewing Company. That's Ironsight, S-I-G-H-T, B-C dot com. If you're a coffee aficionado, you should really check out this subscription coffee service. It's from, from the roaster to your cup in less than 72 hours. Lots of different blends to choose from. they got some pretty cool swag, too. Just click on the link that I provide in my show notes under Sponsors. So two articles that I would like to share with you in the closing segment today. I'm going to start with the article of the day because this is a fairly lengthy article. And by the way, i got to tip my hat to my friend Ruben for sharing with me uh, Tucker Carlson's interview with Brett Weinstein. Brett Weinstein is a, a fairly renowned biologist, but it was one of the best explanations of what was done to us in the name of COVID. And Jeffrey Tucker, writing for the Brownstone Institute, actually has a marvelous recap of this interview between uh, Brett Weinstein and, uh, and Tucker Carlson. And he says, you know, the, the beautiful thing about this is Tucker lets him speak. In fact, he says, I urge you to, to take an hour and watch the entire episode. And, and in his article, uh, Jeffrey Tucker also includes a transcript. So if you don't want to sit down and watch the whole thing, if you read quicker... You know, this might be the thing to do. He says, the value for added from this interview is truly incalculable. It's not only the reach, which quickly passed 3 million a day after its release. That's a vast number of influencers who now know what's what. And he says, we've been striving for nearly four years to get the word out on that scale. So congratulations to Tucker and to Weinstein. More important, though, is the fundamental message, which is, The COVID response was a fiasco for the ages, and it was never about public health, even if that was the rhetorical cover. It was about profits and power, a terrible truth that the public is going to be dealing with for many years to come, especially what it says about the depth of corruption of the political system under which we live. Jeffrey Tucker says, if you ever puzzle about the source of loss of trust in our times, this interview is one of the best sources. It also has the advantage of having processed the stream of studies and revelations over four years and putting them all into a single package. He says, what's striking here is something I didn't recognize when my first book on the topic came out. The promise of a magic antidote to the virus was not ancillary, but central to the all of government and all of society response that was undertaken. Jeffrey Tucker says, indeed, I had never thought about vaccines much either way when the lockdown swept all before them. Based on my reading, he says it seems obvious to me, or it seemed obvious to me, that you cannot vaccinate your way out of a coronavirus pandemic. So I was mystified as to why they were attempting to do this. But he says beyond that, I had no well-formed views. Plus, at some point early on, Fauci himself said, we wouldn't need a vaccine to get out of the pandemic. If we can get to the RO in less than one... The epidemic will gradually decline and stop on its own without a vaccine. That's what he wrote back on March 2nd, 2020. Jeffrey says, discovering that email put me off the trail. But he says, as I later thought about that, I realized that the statement is ridiculous. An R0 less than 1 means that the, the virus is already endemic, in which case a vaccine would not be needed in any case. 
but social distancing could not possibly achieve that alone. R0 is a measure after the fact, not a determinant of viral dynamics. It measures virus spread. It doesn't instruct or dictate to the virus what to do. Even if you could drive down the infection rate by putting everyone in their own cardboard box, the virus doesn't give up. It's lying there in wait for more spread the instant one goes back to normal. So why would Fauci make such a statement? Probably to prolong the time of compliance with the lockdown edicts that were going to arrive two weeks later. He knew that he needed many months, ideally and implausibly, to keep the frenzy going all the way until past the election in November so that Trump would lose, having destroyed the economy, and then the deep state would be firmly in charge. Now, Brett doesn't focus on all those specifics, but he does give a detailed explanation of what is wrong with the mRNA shots. And here he is uncommonly clear. Jeffrey Tucker says, like you, I've encountered so many claims and issues here and speculations on the harm as well as theories why that it all becomes a bit disorienting and difficult keeping all the information sorted, at least for non-experts like me. He says this interview clears up so much, namely concerning the brilliance of the technology, but also its difficulty in gaining approval for use. In Brett's view, the mRNA tech has long been a coveted asset of pharmaceutical companies, simply as intellectual property. Those with their names on the active patents stood to become very rich, pending approval. As a platform technology, it allows the time passage from sequencing to final product to be reduced to a matter of days. In that case, the sheer number of products that could be produced by replacing existing products, and not only vaccines, is vast. Some 30 years had gone by without a product that could pass federal approval, and the industry had become quite impatient, awaiting some big bang to give them the opportunity. COVID was the moment to bypass normal testing standards and get it out to the masses of people worldwide under the cover of emergency use. Now, he says Brett doesn't mention this, but it fits exactly with the facts we have. The first and really only vaccine to be withdrawn from the market belonged to Johnson & Johnson, or J&J, and it was not an mRNA technology. So it became pretty obvious at this point that the FDA and Fauci were privileging mRNA shots and seeking to crush the competition. At least he says that was pretty obvious to him early on. But the bigger picture, the ominous reality, he says, was slow to dawn on me. Namely, that the mRNA platform technology for the release of the gene therapy, wrongly called a vaccine, was central to the entire COVID response. Without understanding that, we miss the forest for the trees. It was the driving motivation for the initiation of lockdowns, together with other political machinations and their absurd prolongation. When shot uptake was not as widespread as expected, the mandates under the Biden administration took hold, and the supposed emergency had to be continued on and on. And when it became clear that the vaccines were not effective for stopping infection or transmissions, and whatever good they did was so short-lived, the strategy had to turn toward marketing boosters, which in turn required ever more emergency-based public frenzy. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says realizing all of this truly does take one's breath away. When you consider the scale of damage to the whole society and entire world, for all for purposes of patent piracy and fast-tracking a technological deployment, one almost cannot imagine that any government could be so captured and corrupt. It seems to stretch the bounds of plausibility, and yet, here we are. Knowing all of this helps frame up some of the mysteries of the time, such as the wild and aggressive censorship. 
To manage a caper on this scale required the creation of the appearance of consensus. The point was to prepare the way for the vaccine rollout, which everyone was supposed to regard as their salvation from lockdowns, masks, and closures. He says, remember, too, that many deep state actors benefit from a strong censorship apparatus. Not just pharma, but the national security state, which was intimately involved from the beginning. He says, it's why the edict of March 13th put the National Security Council in a position of rule-making authority and, dis- and assigned to the CDC only an operations role. The crackdown on misinformation had become a government-wide priority by then. Anyone who broke the woven narrative claiming that such was not necessary and that this wave of respiratory infections would end, like every other wave in the history of the world, and moreover, the actual medical threat was severely limited to a small population cohort of the elderly and infirm, was ipso facto an enemy of the state. That is obviously why stating plain truths of traditional public health, such as you'll find in the Great Barrington Declaration, was not allowed, and why any such attempt had to be subjected to a, quote, quick and devastating takedown, in the words of Francis Collins of the National Institute of Health. Now, there is much more to this article, but you really should check it out. By the way, he says, Brett Weinstein ends his, our, his interview on an optimistic note. The sheer number of people deplatformed and silenced is huge, and they're certainly not without intelligence, wherewithal, reach, and motivation to fight back. They now form a huge counterforce of correct information, and best of all, they aren't going anywhere. With enough people becoming aware, it's possible to stop this and change the trajectory. We have to believe the whole world is not completely consumed by greed and corruption and that there's still room for high ideals and the innate human longing to be free. I hope you'll check this out. Better still, watch the interview. Hear it in in Brett Weinstein's own words. I think most of us suspect that, that something really underhanded was being done to us in the name of, oh, we're just trying to protect you. It felt off, you know, pretty early on to me. I won't say, oh, I caught on from the very beginning. I didn't. But I'll tell you, the mask mandates, that was my first big clue. And that's the first time I realized, wow, they're really going to, they're really going to back us into a corner and who knows where it will take us. Well, now we've had a chance to see where it would take us. Are you happy about it? Because I'm certainly not. This is The Brian Hyde Show.